So once we have decided that we need to make a phone call, we would basically enhance the representation and strengthen the representation of the phone in the brain, and we would diminish the representation of the computer in the brain. So one is the selection and the other one is the filtering. That in the normal brain, the selection and the filtering uh, are interconnected, uh, so the filtering comes for free in a sense. In the ADHD brain, you basically have both of these processes need to be directed. You need to actively filter and you need to actively select. So you're basically doing double duty and that makes this uh, attention network very inefficient. And we need to understand at the individual level what's going wrong and then we can help i think in much more informed ways i think right now adhd is treated as if it's one uniform condition but we know this is not a uniform syndrome that we are looking at adhd rewired episode 91 this is the show designed to help those of us who have really good intentions and a slightly wandering attention my name is eric tivers i'm a licensed clinical social worker coach and consultant we know that starting can be the hardest part so let's get started but first let me thank our sponsors Support for this podcast comes from Audible. For a free audiobook download, go to ericktivers.com slash audible for a link for that free download and for some hand-picked recommendations. Go to ericktivers.com slash audible for your free audiobook download. I know how much you like to plan ahead. It was a joke. If you're interested in the ADHD Rewired Winter Coaching Group, you can let me know at coachingrewired.com. That's coachingrewired.com. We begin in January. Hello. It is a week past the Chad conference. It's November 23rd, 2015, as I'm recording this. And um, I thought I would be kind of remiss if I didn't kind of give you a, a little bit of an update on how the Chad conference went. So before we get on with today's interview, I want to kind of share with you how the conference went. But if you have no interest in that, that's cool too. Um, look in the the show notes on your podcast player, and I'll uh, we'll have the time marker for when the actual interview starts. Um, so check that out or tune in because I'm going to tell you about the conference right now. I'm also going to tell you some information about the uh, some updated information about the upcoming coaching group. All right, about the conference. Well, for me, it was certainly a Chad conference like none other. On so I got there on Wednesday, uh, the Wednesday um, leading up to to all the sessions and everything. Thursday evening, I lost my voice, and I was uh, geared to speak on Saturday. So having ADHD at an ADHD conference, I did what I think may have been one of the most difficult things that I've ever done and maybe anyone with ADHD would ever have to do. And all of Friday, I didn't talk. 
I walked around with a clipboard uh, to let people know that I couldn't talk. I, I had a little sign that I had uh, letting people know that I was saving my voice. And um, and you can even hear now, it's not still not 100%. Um, I would say it's 90%, but definitely not 100%. Um, and in this process, you know, it, sure, it was certainly there, there was frustration with it, but it really allowed me to to really have a lot of gratitude. Um, and being that we're coming up on Thanksgiving now, I thought this would be a really uh, um, just kind of good opportunity for me to share some of my my thanks and my gratitude towards uh, some of the people that really kind of stood out to me um, over the course of the Chad conference. Um, so the, on Thursday night, um, I was messaging, uh, text messaging with Roberto Olivardia, who I've had on the show before, and he got wind that I had lost my voice, and and he was asking uh, if um, if I needed anything. I'm like, no, I'm okay. Um, he he brought me from the store a thing of a whole box of throat tea and a thing of honey. And it was just one of the kindest things that I think anyone did for me there. Uh, so Roberto, thank you so much. I, I drank all of the tea. Um, it was just, that was huge. Thank you so much. Um, I want to thank Kate for, I, th- I forget which day it was on, um, for bringing me some extra cups. I uh, went to turn in for the night and, um, I was messaging with her and uh, let her know. I asked her if she had any cups in her room, and um, without any other questions, she uh, she brought me some cups to my room. So, thank you, Kate, for that. Uh, I want to thank Jen for bringing me a whole bag of cold supplies, um, cold and like throat voice things. Uh, so, thank you. That was really really nice of you. Um, D bought me a drink on Saturday night, so I want to thank you for that. Um, Doug, who I've had on the show uh, before, uh, Doug Harris, a um, couple things. Doug, thank you for um, when I was, as I was getting ready to talk on Saturday, I had read somewhere that it's good to have like chips shortly before, like potato chips shortly before you speak um, because it actually greases your throat. And he uh, he was a man, he got me some chips to, uh, uh, to eat right before I started talking. And even more so, the I think it was it was one of the nights that we were hanging out, and Doug said to me, "You know, it must be really something seeing all these people from the ADHD Rewired community uh, that you've, you kind of brought here and put together." And I just want to thank you, Doug, for really like causing me to kind of pause and notice that because um, it really allowed me to not take that for granted. So thank you for helping me see that. And thank you for everyone from the ADHD Rewired community for, for being there. It really is extraordinary. Um, a couple other thank yous. Uh, Jeremy from, from Chad, who uh, invited me to present on uh, on Friday, a short presentation. Or no, it was Thursday. Yeah, I think it was Thursday. I lose track of my days. On uh, social media to Chad Leaders. So thank you for that. And for the generous uh, um, Starbucks card for for uh, presenting with you. So that was totally unnecessary. But thank you so much for that. Um, and I do have a couple special thank yous. Um, one, 
uh, to Tom Nardone. Uh, I mean, I, Tom, I don't know how I could have done the whole conference kind of without you. Um, Tom was my interpreter um, basically most of the day on uh, on Friday when I wasn't talking. Um, it was just, it was awesome because Tom just knows me so well. And um, so I was basically talking to people through Tom. And that was just a lot of fun. And, and uh, also for just bringing stuff to me, helping me uh, with some AV stuff, uh, recording my session uh, on video for me. Um, and then Tom and Yvonne on, I think it was Thursday, um, for coming up to my room and letting me practice my presentation in front of you guys. Um, so thank you guys uh, really for uh, from the bottom of my heart for uh, doing everything that you guys did um, and making the, the conference what it was. And there's one final thank you that I, I cannot forget, and that's to my wife, uh, who, um, you know, lets me go to the conferences. I know it sounds weird to say lets me go, but, um, you know, I know it's, I know it's hard to, for me to be away. Um, and she, uh, she's, you know, a complete supporter of what I'm doing. And so, uh, thank you. Um, even though, babe, I know you're probably not ever going to listen to this because I think you got stuck on episode 20 or something and you it's been overwhelming for you to catch up that's all right I love you anyways um it was also there's a bunch of people I also got to talk to or meet uh even if it was just briefly um so I just want to kind of give a shout out to Andrew Jenny Friedman uh Deshaun Wirt um Lori Dupar um I hope your person schedules with me um We've been going back and forth trying to get you on the podcast. Uh, Lolly, it's been, it was awesome talking to you. Donna, Andrea, Lisa, uh, Mindy, and Jeff, and uh, Kirsten. It's just awesome hanging out with all of you. I wish I could have talked with more of you guys more. Um, and then I also want to congratulate Kim Kensington, uh, the doctor of procrastination, for finally getting her book published. I know it was a true uh, um, uphill battle for for you and I just want to congratulate you. I'm so proud of you uh for for doing that. It's gonna be a great success. Um I'll post a I'll try to post a link to that book in the uh, show notes because I don't even remember what it was called. Um so final thing um just a quick announcement before we get on to the uh to the interview regarding the next coaching group. Well this is the uh, last week of my summer session and, you know, the last weeks of, of these coaching groups were always, uh, you know, it's kind of a bittersweet feeling. Um, it's been a lot of growth in, in people. Uh, you know, this session was really, uh, it was great for a lot of different reasons. We had probably the best kind of retention people who were in the group, uh, consistently in the group for um, for probably more than any other group. Um, so I just thought that was great. And I just love the the as we kind of close things out, how um, a lot of these lessons learned about these insights that we have about productivity are so much deeper than just about getting things done. Um, in today's session, there was a uh, one of the members of the group talked about creating a, um, a kind of category of things of just to let go of. And so I just it's things like that that I just love that are just so extraordinarily powerful. Um, so with this group wrapping up, that means the next group is going to get underway uh, fairly soon. So let me tell you a little bit about that, and um, and then we'll, we'll get on with the episode. Um, so the start date, um, 
I think I had on my website, it was January 11th. Um, that's actually not accurate. Uh, the early registration ends January 11th. So if you want to get in at the lowest cost, uh, definitely sign up for a, uh, a, a screening consultation call with me. You can do that at my website. Um, and do that by January 11th. So the start, we're going to have an, so in these coaching groups, they're 10 weeks long. Um, if you've been listening for a while, you're familiar with kind of the, the framework of it. If you're not welcome um, to ADHD Rewired. And here we're, we're more than just a podcast, we're community. And we do online coaching groups the way no one else does it. So um, the it's gonna there's gonna be an orientation week, which is not part of the uh, the coaching group. That's February first. Um, so that week we're gonna make sure everyone is set up on technology, everything logistically is squared away, and then the following week I'm going on vacation. I'm going to California. Um, so the start date it's gonna be February sixteenth of the actual uh, starting with coaching. So. If you're interested, schedule your consultation, your free consultation screening call with me now. I already have two people signed up, um, which is always a good sign. So I'm going to stop rambling. I'm going to give you the link, and um, and then we'll get on with this uh, this week's episode, this week's interview, because it's a really, really interesting one. Um, all right, go to coachingrewired.com to get more information about the coaching group and links there where you can schedule with me or you can just go directly to meetme.so slash Eric Tivers and you can schedule your free 20-minute consultation screening with me. All right, guys, um, thanks for um, hearing me out. I just wanted to share uh, just what I was grateful for. I wanted to give you the update on the conference. Oh, Always one more thing, right? Um, if you guys don't listen to uh, the Tom Nardone show, um, he Tom gives a great, great Tom and Yvonne have a great recap of the chat conference um, where I think um, he made name drop to more people uh, on his episode than I just did on this intro. Uh, it's just an awesome, fun episode. Go to the Tom Nardone show to listen to that uh, that episode. And if you're still listening to my intro. You're a super fan. This might have been my longest kind of pre-conversation talk uh, of all of our episodes. And this is episode 91. So I just want to thank everybody for listening. For everybody who has left a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to ADHD Rewired On. And did you know that we hit the 200,000 download mark uh, last week? So it was Thank you, thank you, thank you. And everyone, I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving. And if you are listening to this way past Thanksgiving, I hope your Thanksgiving was really nice, even if it was months and months ago. Let's get on with the episode. Here at ADHD Rewired, we are all about sharing stories of what it is like to live with ADHD. These stories that you hear on the show are based on people's experiences and are rooted in science when we're talking about the strategies for living with ADHD. Every so often, you will hear episodes that are more based on science and where I get to talk to research scientists. Today's episode is one of those episodes. We are going to be talking with Dr. Sabine Kastner 
from Princeton University. And I just want to give a thank you to Jane Millerod, who was a past guest on this podcast and who made the connection for us. So enjoy this episode. I think you will learn a lot. It was really, really fascinating. We dive into areas of selective attention and how our brain filters attention, focusing on sensory information. And the information that you will hear on today's episode regarding research is preliminary research. And Dr. Sabine Kastner also does a really nice job of stating as such. Because using and discussing evidence-based treatments is very important it is, and is something that guides the stories that I share on this show. The research that she will discuss today is as she does discuss in the beginning phases. You may have more questions after the show. And luckily, Dr. Kastner has invited all of you to ask questions by emailing her and all the links to how you can contact her will be in the show notes for this episode. Without any further ado, let's get on with the interview. Welcome back to another episode of ADHD Rewired. I am really happy to have in the virtual ADHD Rewired studios, my guest, Dr. Sabine Kastner. She is a professor of neuroscience and psychology in the Princeton Neuroscience Institute at the Department of Psychology, where she's been since 2000. She serves as the scientific director of the Scully Center Neuroimaging Facility. Dr. Kastner earned her MD in 1993 and her PhD degrees and did her postdoctoral studies at the National Institute of Mental Health. Dr. Kastner studies the neural basis of visual perception, attention, and awareness in the adult brain, in patients with brain lesions, and during neurodevelopment. She has published more than 100 articles in journals and books, including the Handbook of Attention, a comprehensive state-of-the-art reference for the field, published by Oxford Press in 2013. Dr. Kastner is an advocate for children with neurodevelopmental challenges. And Dr. Kastner, I want to welcome you. You are definitely bringing to ADHD Rewired a wealth of knowledge, and I just want to welcome you. Thank you. Thanks for having me, and thanks for this wonderful introdu introduction. So you have been studying attention and attention selection for... 30 years, pretty much, from the very beginning of my career. Um, after, you know, some very basic studies on color perception, I shifted more or less right away to study the problem, how we select... Uh, information from our cluttered visual environments. So I'm a vision scientist, and um, what really stands out in vision is that we are surrounded by all this clutter, and we can deal with it in a very efficient and effortless way uh, in a you know normal developed brain and in a normal adult. But once we see how people who have deficits in this process struggle, we can, you know, that's the moment when we appreciate um, uh, how uh, efficient this, this brain can work. And I try to understand what this 
normal process is that that underlies the selection of uh, information that is relevant to ongoing behavior and the filtering of all this clutter, because I think that from a very thorough understanding of these normal processes, um, we can develop ultimately uh, strategies to help people, patient groups, children who struggle with, with attention issues. So I think that, you know, everyone in my audience would resonate with the the challenge of clutter in their environments and that we often get visually distracted. Um, I, I created a video not that long ago using a, a one of those plasma balls, one of those electricity balls. You put your finger on it and the, the electricity is drawn towards your finger as an analogy for attention in the ADHD brain. And that it's, it doesn't matter what finger is on it. It doesn't matter what is more important than the other thing. Your, the ADHD brain tends to give equal attention to whatever is in its, its uh, perception. So it has a hard time uh, prioritizing. So it kind of prioritizes based on proximity, not priority. And as you were kind of talking, one of the first things that was coming to my mind was that with your kind of in-depth study of attention in the brain can give us a better understanding by exploring the why of, of why is it so important to kind of declutter our spaces and have a, a visually less distracting environment for our focus, for our attention? Because I think we all know that, yes, it's a good thing that we should be doing, but we also have a really hard time doing it. And I think for a lot of us with ADHD, when we get a why that really, really resonates with us, it actually helps motivate the action to do something different. So I'm really interested in exploring this topic with you. What have you learned over the past 30 years that um, you think, as far as other attention researchers, especially in the area of ADHD, aren't maybe talking about enough that needs to be uh, talked about more? Um, I think this is a great question. So what is typically emphasized in ADHD is um, our control functions of the attention network. So the, the selection of, of information and the filtering of unwanted information is um, subserved by a very large network in the brain at and it uh, basically encompasses all major lobes of the brain. So the frontal lobe, the parietal lobe, um, if we talk about vision um, or other sensory domains, also the sensory processing areas. Um, so this network basically operates together to mediate these two functions. And I think what has not been enough emphasized is, first of all, that it's not only about focus and selection, but it's also about the filtering. The way we view this as attention researchers is that this is the flip side of a coin. Um, so one process actually depends on the other. They interact with each other. And I think this kind of interaction has not been emphasized enough. Uh, that's one. And the other one is that there's a lot of emphasis on uh, the control functions that are uh, mediated by higher order cortex, by frontal regions in particular, but also by parietal regions. And that basically these control functions 
fail or are not uh, functional um, um, or whatever happens, it's not really very well understood what the exact neural basis is. But again, I think this is a shortcut there because um, it is very, very possible that the sensory information is already represented at, in a very different way in individuals uh, afflicted with ADHD. Um, and for that reason, these control mechanisms fail because they cannot really operate um, on this sensory uh, uh, processing stream anymore. And when, so when you say it presents in a different way, what, what do you mean by that? Um, so... The um, let me see how I can explain that mm -hmm. in a you know simple simplified enough but not too simplistic way. Um, this is I know it's, it's one of the most challenging things is yeah. to break you know these really complex ideas down in a way that like a kindergartner can understand it. I think mm -hmm. that takes genius to be able to do that, um, but really valuable so we can all say oh and instead of just sort of grasping it. So to the best that you can, I know that's kind of a, a challenging question. Yeah, so if we just, you know, think about um, the clutter that I have here on my on my desk at work. So there are a number of things that, um, you know, stare at me right now that I need to take care of later on after our interview. Now, um, how do we select, let's say, between two objects, just to make it a little bit simple? So okay. I have, you know, a computer and I have a phone. Um, and I want to do something with, you know, one or the other. Um, the way this works, and that is what we have learned from the last 20 years or so, is that when we just stare at these two objects and without any intention, just, you know, in a very passive and not task-associated um, or related way, these two objects will now start to compete at the neural level for being represented. They want to be represented in equal ways, mm -hmm. but the way the visual system works is actually that they cannot. So basically one takes away from the other and that's an automatic process and that happens with all the objects in the world. Now, what attention is doing is twofold. So once we have now a task set and we have decided that we need to make a phone call, we would basically um, enhance the representation and strengthen the representation of the phone in the brain and we would diminish the representation of the computer in the brain so one is the selection and the other one is the filtering okay. but these two so you can think about it really as you know ramping one up and ramping the other one down um but the um the, the key issue is here that this process, this is also what I mean with the flip side of the coin, mm -hmm. can only work if we have this initial state of competition in the brain. If we don't have that competition, the whole control mechanism that directs this process of enhancing and diminishing will fail. Um, so one possibility is that in, uh, in individuals with ADHD, that these kind of competitive processes are not set up. If that is so, that is something that uh, we are going to study actually during the next couple of years here at Princeton um, in uh, young adults with ADHD. If that is so, then the control has to fail. There is just nothing to work on for the attentional control mechanism because it needs basically this kind of competitive interaction between things in the world in order to be um, successful. So let, let me ask you this. So I, um, 
about a couple months ago, I was giving a presentation to a group of, of teachers and I kind of made up this analogy on, uh, on the fly and it, it came off really well, thankfully, because I sort of took a chance. Let me try to explain it and ask listeners to kind of do this with me. So take your hand and, and, and hold up your three fingers. So you're, you're, it's kind of like the peace sign, but with your ring finger. So mm-hmm. your middle finger is your attention network. It's, that's the one that's supposed to be focusing on what you want to be focusing on. To, the, to either side of your attention networks is your inhibition networks. They're kind of like the bodyguard for your attention network. The problem with the ADHD brain is the, the inhibition networks or the bodyguards keep telling the, the focus network, hey, look at this over here. This is also awesome. So this one's not doing its job. This one's not doing its job as I'm putting both my side fingers down. And then you end up feeling, well, how do you feel when you have one finger in the middle pointing up? So it's, um, would you say as far as an, a, as crude of an analogy as that could be, is that fairly accurate? This is a great analogy because I think what happens here is that in the normal brain, you have your three processes. So I hold those up. Um, um, and what you see basically is that you get interconnections between, you know, your ring finger and your middle finger um, or your pointy finger and your middle finger. So there are constant interactions between this. I think in the ADHD brain, these interactions are not there, basically. And this is why now this kind of, you know, control process says, oh, I want to, you know, really select this, but this one is equally strong. So is this. And then you basically start to wander from one to the other um, and, and you cannot resolve this. But I think it is because you do not have these interactions and they have never developed. And And to me, from an application standpoint, that sounds like the same thing of, we know that people with ADHD don't utilize self-talk as much as people without ADHD. Now we do have that ability, but we have to be much more intentional about it. So the application of these, of, of kind of um, uh, stimulating the inhibition networks is we have to not only tell ourselves and be more intentional about what we are going to do, but we also have to be more intentional about what we are not going to do. So on a real kind of uh, tactical level, we could put, when we're working on our computer, we could put a, one sticky note on our computer that says what we are working on and maybe another one right next to it that reminds us what we're not working on. Right. And I think what um, what what it really means in a sense is that in the normal brain, the selection and the filtering uh, are interconnected. Uh, so, you know, it, the filtering comes for free in a sense. One <laughs> select right whereas mm-hmm. you know in the adhd brain you basically have both of these processes need to be directed so you you need to actively filter and you need to actively select so you're basically doing double duty and that makes this uh, attention network very inefficient which then it, you know in doing the strategies that i suggested would then further uh, kind of deplete the resources for executive functioning yeah so what else can we do what is what is the research showing about this well, the research, I think, um, is in in baby uh, stages right now. So um, what we basically know from, you know, the, the ADHD research that has been done thus far, and this is research that mainly uses functional brain imaging and um, structural imaging of the ADHD brain. Uh, there's also a newer method that's called diffusion tensor imaging, mm-hmm. which is able to track 
uh, fibers in the brain um, that connect, you know, regions that are relatively uh, far apart from each other. And I know in my and, interview with Dr. Barkley, he talked a lot about that method of, of brain imaging. And I, and I haven't done a lot of, of research on that myself. So it's, um, it's really interesting to hear you talking about that as well. Yeah, so basically, I think what comes out of this research at this moment in time is that um, the attention network, and we can define this network very well because um, it is even um, active in a sense uh, in what we call the resting state. So when we basically uh, do nothing, uh, certainly not focusing on anything, um, this network can still be identified. So the regions of this attention network are always kind of uh, correlated with each other so that this network can be really fast uh, recruited when uh, it's necessary. So that's one way to think about it. So we can define this network um, from relatively unspecific data, which is wonderful. And if we just do that, what comes out in the ADHD brain is that this network is just not as tightly interconnected. Um, and when we actually engage um, uh, this network in an ADHD individual um, with an attention task, then it gets uh, underactivated, so it's not as strongly activated um, as in, you know, an, 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 a neurotypical um, uh, adult or child. And is it well, that it's underactivated, mm -hmm. or that it's being, um, it's not as as prominent because the other networks of the of the attention network aren't like cooperating no, in is, a sense. It is much less activated, less activated. in okay. these studies. Um, but in a sense, uh, at least from my perspective, this is a no-brainer because basically we know that this person has an attention deficit. So yes, I mean, there has to be some kind of, you know, correlate in the brain for that and that the attention network is just less activated is in a sense something that is absolutely to be expected. So I think the, um, the step that we need to take here is to um, to understand, and that was basically the work that um, uh, people like myself and many others in the field have done during the last 20 years using functional brain imaging in the human and the normal adult human brain, is to really understand what the different nodes of these networks are doing and where in the process of this you know, selection and filtering that we have talked about, where things go wrong, at which particular level. And this could be very different, you know, from individual to individual. So you can easily see that, you know, in one individual, um, you have more of an executive functioning component, more of a prefrontal cortex component that is typically where these processes um, are, uh, you know, as, or the brain region that these processes are associated with. Um, and in other individuals, it could be much more on a sensory processing end um, and uh, a completely different mechanism uh, so that, you know, basically the higher order control processes could be fine, but again, they could just not operate, find ways to operate on on the sensory systems because the sensory systems are uh, some uh, are dysfunctional in some ways. So I think that um, we need to really start to pinpoint what where things go wrong at which level in in this um, at the, uh, at which level of the network operation. Um, that's number one. And number two, and I feel very, very strongly about that, is we need to do it at an individualized level. This is not, you know, a uniform syndrome that we are looking at. Mm -hmm. I think we can 
pinpoint at this moment in time to this network being dysfunctional. But this network has many parts. This network has subcortical parts. Um, this network has many, you know, different cortical nodes that all do a lot of different functions. And we need to understand at the individual level, what's going wrong? And then we can help, I think, in much more informed ways. I think right now ADHD is treated as if it's one uniform condition, but we know. I mean, that's for sure from many, many data points. Right, right. I mean, in one of the uh, the uh, points that I like to make that I heard, I forgot who it was. I wish I can give credit to who I heard it from. Um but the idea that, you know, if we look at the the criteria of you need six out of nine of either the hyperactivity uh, presentation or the or six out of nine of the inattention presentation, that there's a combination of you can get of I think if you do a mathematical factorial, eighty six thousand four hundred possibilities of that of those combinations can bring into an ADHD diagnosis. So yeah, it's yeah. it's it's a syndrome, you know. It's absolutely Except, not just a. Uh, I mean, I think that looking at ADHD almost as a type of spectrum disorder would probably be more accurate um, versus, as you're saying, just this thing that you have with these different kind of presentations. Um, so I think that's a good distinction. Um, so in the the area of so you talked about focusing versus filtering. Now, is, so this is different in your mind and the way you're looking at this from attention versus inhibition. Um, or is it, is it similar? Yes and no. Okay. Well, the way I view it is, so when we talk about filtering, I put this more into a sensory domain. So we need to filter, you know, uh, information in the visual world constantly uh, to, to find some focus. Um, we also have to do that um, in, the, in the auditory domain. So if we are, you know, at a party where many people talk and we want to talk to a specific person, then, uh, you know, we need to try to suppress all this other uh, noise level in order to have a good conversation. Um, so we, we see this kind of filtering in the sensory domains, I think, in the most dramatic ways. But the way I view it um, in, in terms of, you know, inhibition um, and, uh, and, and control is um, this is just a higher level. So now we are talking about, um, you know, conflicting motivations that we may have. So we have to suppress one uh, in order to follow through with the, uh, with, with, you know, the other one and so on. Um, or you could have, um, I don't know, three different um, uh school tasks, let's say, for a school child to do, and you have now to find a structured way how to approach this and in which sequence and so on and so forth. And then you have to, you know, inhibit impulses to, um, uh, you know, to switch to another one before completing uh, the one you're working on and so on and so forth. So these sort of tasks, for me, they are just, from a brain perspective, the same problems. They just happen at a much, much higher level or they engage, you know, other cognitive networks, basically, mm -hmm. uh, other than sensory networks. But it has to do with this kind of uh, problem that the brain has been, you know, selecting and filtering. So here the filtering would be more in the form of, you know, suppressing impulses that intrude um, and, and, you know, having some kind of inhibitory control. Um, I think that the way the 
or in the way the brain develops these kinds of processes is actually by learning from how to deal with sensory information because that's what we deal first. So, you know, when you're born, you deal first with the sensory environment and you try to set up structures to uh, to deal with this bombardment of information mm -hmm. that um, you have in front of you. And I think when you set up these um, strategies, how to do that, or your brain sets up the best and most efficient strategies, they get later simply applied to more complicated problems. But the, uh, the, the problem, the core problem is still the same, and it is addressed in many uh, in, in, in almost identical ways. So uh, what I try to say is that if we understand how this is dealt with at this relatively simple, you know, sensory processing level, then we can probably apply a lot what we learn to a much more high level cognitive level, where we probably use a different nomenclature or terminology to refer to these processes. But the processes may not be so different. You know, with um, with my work with uh, individuals on the autism spectrum, uh, especially when I first started working in the field of, of autism, um, you know, I definitely worked with a lot of individuals who were very kind of dysregulated in the terms of their sensory regulation system. And you know, one of the things that I that I learned both through my just you know uh, in, on the job experiences and through reading is that you know you can't get learning if the, if the sensory system is not regulated. So if you have a kid who's having a hard time with their sensory system, you got to focus on that before you focus on anything else. But you can't learn if you don't have attention, but you can't have attention until your body is regulated. So it, that's kind of what it sounds like what you're really talking about is you got to regulate that sensory system and make sure it's modulating and getting the right amount of input. And if it needs more, how do we get that in a, in a way that's healthy? And if we need, if we're getting too much in, how do we kind of filter some of that out in a way that we can not get overstimulated? Um, but what is your research shown in for adults? Because I think that because of my work with autism, I've seen a lot. To me, it seems like the sensory piece of ADHD is a piece that's not being talked about enough. And I think is an area that needs to be talked about. Because I know for even my myself, you know, I, as, as a musician, I look at being able to hear everything as a, as a great ability. And just about every other application, though, it is a pain. You know, you were mentioning about, you know, having a conversation at a party. Like, my brain can't filter. I hear everything and process nothing. You know, when I, when I go to, uh, say, the grocery store, like, I get so overstimulated. You know, my brain sees everything. Like, when I look at someone that can go in and out of a grocery store in five minutes, but can get two things, my first thought is, how do you do that? Because, <laughs> you know, it's, I, my brain just can't do it. Um, so as an adult, how can this be, how can you work on this? Or is it just more of an issue of, of managing uh, your environment? I and mean, I know that we, the more we learn about the, the kind of plasticity of the brain, the ability to rewire the brain, we know that it's not just in early childhood that we can do this. We're learning that we can do this more and more in, in adulthood. Are we seeing this too with the sensory system or is, has research uh, been done yet in this area? Um, I mean, we learn, we know a lot about these, these are all filtering processes at the end of the day. Um, and, um, we have learned a lot about filtering. So initially, like, let's say 20 years ago, people in the attention field would only talk about the selection of 
you know target information so what what you uh what whatever is task relevant uh, and motivates behavior at the time um and then about 20 years ago there's a, a beginning paradigm shift and people say hey you know one percent of the information that we are interested in, uh, or it's one percent of the information that we're interested in, but there's 99 percent that we are not interested in, and we get rid of it. And how the heck can we do this? How the heck does a brain, you know, deal with this 99 percent uh, that tries to intrude on this one percent that we are really interested in? Um, and so this is basically when, when filtering of, of unwanted information became a major focus in the field and people started to really um, uh, try to understand that better. Um, but at the core of this um, lies again the, uh, the fact that all information in the, in the world, all sensory information, be it you know, visual or auditory, has to engage in this competitive process if this competitive process is not set up. There's just no good selection and there's no good filtering. And that would be the first step to understand that in ADHD, um, how these kind of competitive processes set, are set up. And, you know, from what I see in, in ADHD individuals, my hypothesis, it's not known, is that they are not set up at all. If that is so, then we have to retrain the sensory uh, processing systems, the auditory system, the visual system to do these kinds of very basic things. Um, but that start, you know, that basically starts at the exact opposite end of what, you know, is, is typically discussed in terms of, you know, trying to, to help this executive functioning and inhibitory control and so on and so forth. So it would start from, from the other end of the system. Uh, but again, we do not know this. That would be a very first step. We need this kind of concrete research at this moment in time to really characterize what's going wrong in the ADHD brain. And as I said before, I think what we will see is this large spectrum that in some individuals you have this very strong sensory component and you know, in other individuals you just don't have that and they have a much, much more high level component. Um, but that's our challenge at this moment in time to really tease that apart. And, um, and I think we have a lot of wonderful uh, tasks and wonderful theoretical models that we have developed as basic researcher in this area in attention research during the last 20 or 30 years. There's a wealth of information and we simply need to apply it now uh, to ADHD and to other attention deficit, uh, to other uh, attention deficit disorders. Um, and, and the time for this is ripe now. Um, so we have really everything in place to be successful in, in this sort of research. All right. Well, speaking of the time for things being right now, I think it's our time to take a quick break. We're going to let everyone kind of digest all that information that you just provided uh, for us. And we will be right back. Go to audibletrial.com slash ADHD rewired for your free audiobook download. 
if you hate shopping as much as I do, and you love shopping on Amazon as much as I do, support this podcast by doing all your holiday shopping on Amazon, but start at ADHDrewire.com. There's an Amazon search portal there that's on the right side of the page, just a little bit down the way. Go there, you'll get to the same Amazon you were used to, and a small percentage of your purchase will go to support this podcast. And to all my Jewish listeners out there, Hanukkah's early this year. It starts sundown, December 6th. That'll be here before you know it. Do your shopping on Amazon, but start at ADHDrewire.com. Thank you so much. Before we get back to today's interview, let's check in once again with Ryan McRae, the ADHD nerd. Hello, my nerds. This is Ryan McRae, the ADHD nerd, and here's my quick tip for cutting down stimuli. When I need to do concentrated work, I'll slap on some great headphones, and I prefer over-the-ear ones and noise canceling. Then using one of those music subscription programs, I'll throw on some ambient music or some playlists like Afternoon Chill. It's got to be something instrumental and relaxing. But recently, my best move has been this. Gregorian chants. Yes, you heard me. Gregorian chants, and they have to be in Latin. Why? Because they're slow and they provide soothing music. The rookie move is listening to new music. You want to listen to something that is lyric-free and calming. Also, this music can't get stuck in my head because I don't understand it. My brain can't record it because it's not sticky enough. There's no comprehension there. If I listen to new music, my brain's competing to memorize the lyrics while I'm trying to read or write, and it just doesn't work. So in short, listen to music that has has no lyrics, that's nice and slow, and I can't recommend Gregorian chants more. This has been Ryan McRae, the ADHD nerd, and you can find me at theadhdnerd.com. Now back to Eric. That was Ryan McRae from theadhdnerd.com. Ryan, you're such a nerd. Okay, we are back. And I, I, you know, I hope you guys are haven't either fallen asleep or just had your brain going like with like all this information that that uh, you know because because often we t- we talk stories and we talk uh, the the real life kind of individual stories on ADHD Rewired because it's I think the science of this is so incredibly important and what I try to do on this show is to extract what we know about what the science says and what does it actually look like in in real people's lives because i think when people can listen to somebody else's story and and hear oh me too i can i can completely relate to that it then begins to feel not so isolating it begins to lessen the shame that a lot of people with adhd tend to to feel because they're maybe going through life with this kind of secret uh, a challenge that they have that they're not maybe sharing with others or not having an understanding of it. Um, and so what I want to kind of get to, uh, what I want to talk about with you is one, the applications of what are we hoping to discover through this research from a clinical perspective of what what interventions um, are you looking at? And I know that you, ha- you and I talked uh, a, a little while ago about drumming. So I'd like to talk a little bit about about that. Um, and then the uh, the other is just like what sparked your interest in this field of study? Let's start there. Um, in attention research in general, yeah. 
Um, okay, that. Um, so it, it, I have to go all the way back before I uh, went into neuroscience and into medicine. Um, so I was into humanities. I studied history and philosophy as my first and still very big loves, I think, academically. So you were a liberal science um, major uh, in, that, in that degree? No, I was actually completely uninterested in biological sciences until age 22. Okay. Um, you were studying so the humanities. I studied philosophy okay. and um, and I was deeply interested in questions um, of uh, consciousness and uh, how we reach awareness about things in the world, about our own existence um, and so on. And uh, that brought me automatically, so to speak, to um, uh, issues of, you know, brain-mind um, relationships. And uh, I had an eye-opening uh, experience in uh, the mid-80s, so in my very early 20s, um, when I attended a lecture by my later PhD mentor, and he uh, was a neurophysiologist, and he was one of the first at the time who would discuss, and that was a public lecture in public, the relationship between neuroscience and philosophy. That was kind of a no-no at the time mm. uh, that, you know, a, a neuroscientist would just stand up there and say there's something really important uh, to discuss and to explore. And for me as a philosophy student, this was just uh, amazing. And it became very clear in during that lecture that my approach to asking these questions would not be through reasoning or through thinking. It would be through experimentation, so really designing experiments um, and explore uh, processes, neuroprocesses in the brain. Um, and that's what I did. And so I changed completely gears to the dismay of my family and so on. But I succeeded eventually. And uh, and I think it was the right approach for me. But when I um, when I saw my PhD mentor and we discussed the, the theme of my PhD, um, I would say, oh, I'm going to study consciousness. And he said, well, that's not a very good career choice. And um, that was good <laughs> advice, <laughs> especially at the time. And, um, and I said, well, what can I study then? And then he said, well, you know, um, vision and attention, those are the two themes that are most closely to philosophy as uh, neuroscience can come at this moment in time. And that is certainly true because uh, in vision uh, or the fascination that I have with vision is that it is a very creative and active process. So the the way we um, reconstruct the world around us is not in a passive way, but really in a very uh, uh, using a lot of internal representations in a very creative way that we have learned. Um, so it's in a sense that we uh, see what we want to see um, much more than what it's, uh, is out there. And I think we can all relate to that. Where we see what we want to see, we hear what we want to hear, and we do what we exactly. want to do. And attention is an integral process of that because, you know, very rarely we view the world by not attending to something or with attention, I mean here more following some kind of, you know, internal task set of what we are interested in to exploring and so on and so forth. Um, and I I think this is a, 
it's a it's a from my perspective or from my view uh, uh, as a scientist, uh, this is really a wonderful um, hybrid of having a very philosophical mind, but also doing uh, very hardcore basic research that asks very concrete questions and uh, tries to find also concrete answers. Uh, so it's not kind of just thinking about the pie in the sky, but putting the puzzle pieces mm -hmm. together to have that pie in the sky at, at one, uh, uh, you know, time in the future. Now, you, you also have uh, interest in, in dyspraxia, is that correct? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so my son has uh, neurodevelopmental challenges in uh, the area of motor coordination, and uh, that came out about three years ago. He's nine now. He was six at the time. That's a very typical age for uh, dyspraxia to be discovered. Of course, he was and born... Will you, will you define that for our listeners who might not oh, be familiar with it? Oh, dyspraxia, of course. Yeah. Uh, so dyspraxia is... Um, is a disorder that um, where you see in these children um, a lot of issues with coordination. So they have great difficulties to learn um, motor tasks that rely a lot on coordination, like biking or swimming. Um, it can be simple things like uh, using utensils uh, at the dinner table that are a real challenge for them. Um, in the uh, in the area of schoolwork, you see typically really real big challenges in writing. These children do not write legibly, which during elementary school, you know, is a big problem for them. Um, so these are the kinds of uh, things you see at the surface. There's a much much richer. Uh, syndrome behind it, which has a lot to do, again, with sensory processing, which is typically completely overlooked in many of these children, and also in uh, in the domain of memory. Uh, so they use, since they have very poor motor memory, they use uh, a lot of other memory systems, which then cannot be used for academic work in the school setting, for instance, or um, uh, also in, you know, in, in other uh, settings. Uh, so this is just in a nutshell. It's a quite complicated uh, uh, syndrome at the end of the day, which looks like you know, a minor uh, issue with not being able to write legibly uh, mm -hmm. turns actually into uh, you know, a disability that is probably not very severe, but is severe enough to really impair especially young children um, in profound ways. And I have tried to understand this in the first place uh, from a neuroscience perspective or from a neurological perspective a little bit better. And this ultimately uh, is helpful in supporting uh, our son and other children. So I've been an advocate for dyspraxic children um, ever since. And uh, through that, I also uh, got a, had a, or, uh, started to uh, have a much more profound understanding of many other neurodevelopmental disorders, including ADHD, because, as you know, many uh, children with ADHD have motor challenges, not only those uh, who have, you know, or who are labeled as hyperactive. Um, and uh, we see a lot of comorbidity in these different areas of neurodevelopmental challenges. And that's true for dyspraxia, too. So many dyspraxic children are either dyslexic, so they have difficulties uh, reading, or they have ADHD. Well, 
Wow. So you're really been looking at, at all avenues of, of the sensory brain and how it relates to what we do, what we see, um, and how we uh, just kind of move around through the world. And I think it's a really interesting, um, and, and if you are curious about the world, it sounds like you are in a, a great field because there's probably so many more questions than there are answers at this point still. Um, yes, yeah, certainly. Um, and I think um, one thing that I try to uh, promote a lot is to bring uh, people together who work, uh, for instance, with uh, neurodevelopmentally challenged children uh, from the different venues, from the school setting, the school psychologist or, or CSD um, child study team members, um, the teachers, the occupational therapists, the physical therapists, because all these people have very unique views and they know a lot about these disorders and they can tell neuroscientists like myself um, uh, important things that I can learn from and use in my research. I think we need this very integrated approach if we want to really make um, progress here. Um, so, and that is something that's hard to do because you bring people together from very different backgrounds and they have to find a common language to talk to each other mm -hmm. and the willingness, the openness to do it. But I think ultimately, um, that is something that that we will need to bring together people from you know different backgrounds from different venues and start to talk to each other uh, so that we can learn I mean I want to understand what's going wrong in that brain but if I want to put it to the next step and develop programs that will help uh, children or adults who are afflicted um, with attention deficit disorders or other challenges, I need to understand how that really uh, materializes in everyday life. And that these are the kinds of things that, you know, um, the therapists or um, uh, school support uh, personnel and so on can, can tell us about. So we have to come together, um, you know, as a community there to uh, work on different parts of of this puzzle and then I think we, we may be able to help um, but but this is something that's not really supported very well by you know funding agencies they don't understand this approach if you do research fine you do research um, but but I don't think it's enough I really think that uh, you know you need to pull together all, all stakeholders mm -hmm. it's, it's a very complex um, uh, these are complex syndromes that we're dealing with, and they are highly individualized. And um, in order to account for that, I think you will have, well, we will have to make this this effort. Um, and, and we see this as a challenge in a lot of areas of research where there's it's such a disconnect between what's happening in, in the research lab and how is that being implemented in the actual, in, in the real world. You know, and it's, I, it's, it's can be, I'm sure it could be disheartening in a lot of ways when you see that we have this knowledge and yet we look at the school system, we look at a clinic and, it, and it's, you know, the sometimes 10 to 15 years of a, of a delay before the information, if it ever gets filtered through where it needs to be, is going. So, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. That's a challenge. Is there anything that uh, listeners might be able to do that could help you with your research? Um, 
I'm working or I'm I'm uh, participating on uh, quite a few social networks uh, through Facebook, um, and. I really find that very, very useful because I learn a lot from that. I learn a lot from, you know, the questions that are posted there because these are very recurrent struggles that you sometimes learn about. And um, so I would like to encourage the community to continue these kinds of uh social networks and even expand them because in the first place I think support groups are really really important so that people do not get isolated do, are not ashamed of uh, you know the differences of their brain I mean at the end of the day we are all different mm -hmm. all our brains are unique and for some reason we have classified some of them in a normal range and others outside right and it has a lot to do with the way our um, learning settings are set up our work environments are set up and so on and so forth if we would have a different societal structure you know some of the uh, conditions that we have sorted into the atypical range would not be atypical, right? Right. Um, so I think we have to really view that in, in this perspective and social networks can really, I think, make a big, big difference. Uh, for me, they make a big difference because I really uh, can sometimes contribute a little bit of knowledge so that people can put their observations onto some kind of rational basis. And it's not just like, here's this weird thing that, you know, I saw today with my son you know i cannot make any sense of it but it's just so weird uh just to put this little knowledge there and say well it is not so weird it makes perfect sense to me from what i know about the brain um so i think it it is important for people to know that there is a neural basis for their condition it may not help you know to change things right away because we do not have the the knowledge at this moment in time, uh, probably to really uh, develop applications to help. But we will have that knowledge if we continue, um, you know, with the research and if we if we grow it. Um, you know, in, in 10 years from now, ADHD will not be a psychiatric disease or a disease that will be uh, diagnosed on the uh, on some on some behavioral criteria. It will be a neurological disease. This is what it is, in my view. There will be clear neural substrates for that. I, I find it interesting that you're referring to it as a disease. I know that a lot of people in in, uh, in the clinical world um you know, would say that well, it's not a disease at all. It's a it's a disorder. Um, so I'm curious as to your language use when you described it as a disease. Um, it's actually no. I think that was you have to uh, you, you have to edit that out. It's a disorder. <laughs> okay, so all right. It's <laughs> a it's a uh, second English second language thing. Okay. All right. Fair, um, fair and, enough. You know, in German, you would not you would not associate, but when a disorder or disease, so this is why it slipped. Okay. Okay. Um, you know, I think it's interesting. If you're okay with keeping it in, I would love to do that because that's a, it makes <laughs> it makes sense. It's like, oh, so that's that's why because you know because I think that we hear that sometimes and we're like, oh, that person doesn't know what they're talking about. It's like, well, there could be other reasons why that person said that, and you just gave us one of them, and that makes a lot of sense. We are coming to the end, but I want for you to share with us, um, we talked about, about the, the uh, using drumming as a, as a, a potential um, uh, treatment for some of the things that, that we were talking about here. Can you just talk a little bit about that? 
Um, yes, certainly. Uh, I'm not sure whether uh, it, it might be relevant to um, uh, to ADHD. I'm not not entirely sure about that. Um, but I, I tell you um, kind of the larger context uh, about this. And this is very, very new science that just emerged during the last, well, let's say five years or so. So one thing that we have learned, and that's really, really interesting, is that um, these major cognitive networks like the attention network, and then there are others, you have a language network, you have memory networks. Um, so these, these major networks that we can define very well in the human brain that support major cognitive functions, they use uh, resonance frequencies to, or they appear to use resonance frequencies can to you communicate. Define that? So um, yeah, I want to give you an example. You can you can think about it as a radio station, basically. So you have for a radio station a certain frequency that you dial in order to uh, uh, to uh, to receive it, right? Uh, that's very similar. So let's say the attention network would use a 10 hertz frequency because that's just the attention network frequency that it uses, mm -hmm. and the memory network may use actually a slower frequency, let's say five hertz, and then the motor system is probably faster. It uses 25 hertz. I mean, you get the idea, yep, right? I get it, yeah. But it's not really different from a radio station. So they just basically pick these frequencies that um, are optimized for the kind of information that needs to be processed in that network, but it's a relatively stable frequency. And then I think these frequencies bands are important because they are also used for now for interactions between these networks because you know the attention network has to uh, be able to communicate with the motor network or with the memory network and so on and so forth constantly so maintaining those frequencies is probably very very important for this kind of crosstalk um, now what we see in um, mental diseases like schizophrenia or in autism uh, very clearly is that these kinds of resonance frequencies seem to be off. Um, so let's say now the attention network um, operates at 15 hertz instead of 10 hertz. Well, it may actually operate quite fine at 15 hertz, but now it's isolated from the rest because at 15 hertz, you cannot communicate with a 5 hertz or 25 hertz network anymore because you need a 10 hertz resonance frequency for that. Um, so these are the, the you know, uh, irregularities that we have seen in, in autism thus far and, and in schizophrenia. And there's now emerging um, uh, evidence that this may be true for ADHD as well and probably for, you know, lots and lots of, of other conditions. So this is something really, really important, I think, to learn about uh, because that could be a key mechanism. So it could be that we need to simply bring those networks that may still function by themselves to some extent, simply back to the frequency that they need to communicate with other networks. That could be one key pathology uh, uh, mechanism in, uh, in, in ADHD, you know, and, and other disorders. And then so how is that applied to using drumming? Well, you could probably. Um, so the idea of that was came to me before I even knew about this research. Now I'm doing this research myself in my lab because it is so fascinating. But um, this had to do with my son. Something what I noticed. So he has a motor disorder, basically. Mm -hmm. um, 
And what I noted with them is, so typical people, what they can do is they can pick um, a, uh, they can pick up a rhythm. Their motor system picks up a rhythm. That's what you know most people do. So you you hear, you know, I'm a bit big Beatles fan. You hear Beatles song and you just you know go like right. that. In, in trainment, you you just start moving right. to that beat. Um, so basically, your motor system picks up that rhythm that, of course, has nothing to do with motor system it just comes to the auditory system and basically entrains the motor system automatically but the interesting thing was that um he couldn't do that he would not develop that rhythm he couldn't hold a rhythm at all so uh, then i ran into this research and i thought well probably what happens here is really that the motor system is just disconnected from the rest um so this is why you know it cannot really function with other domains so um so the idea about drumming here is that we basically start to entrain that motor system again, that it can pick up other rhythms. I think it's not only rhythms that are literally there in music, it's other rhythms of the brain, rhythms of cognitive networks that the motor system then cannot pick up on either. It's not only, you know, the outside rhythm that it cannot pick up upon. So basically by giving the motor system back this ability to pick up on rhythms um you know you may actually build this function again that's the idea behind it whether it works i don't know since he started drumming we have seen big big gains Hmm. and um we see of course uh at least in a subset of adhd individuals a very strong motor component and in those individuals this may be worth a try it comes you know it's fun uh it doesn't take much really um but it could be that at the end of the day just simple um interventions like that may be highly successful because they you know, tap into a very profound um, brain mechanism that we didn't know about until very recently. And again, this is a little bit speculative at this time because it's very new research. Um, but I, what I could do is to recommend if you have a hyperactive uh, component in your ADHD or if your child expresses that, just try it out. It cannot harm, but it may help in big, big ways. Uh, but this could be it. It's just to show you that uh, simple interventions that um, I actually used in autism for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, drumming is loose or, or building rhythms is, is used in, in interventions for, for ASD for a really mm-hmm. long time. Um, and it could be that they are tapping into very, very profound brain mechanisms that now, you know, scientists like myself start to uh, reveal and to, to better understand what their function is. And I'll tell you, I used to work in, I was a clinical program director in, in residential, uh, working with, with uh, uh, kids and, and adults who um, all had cognitive uh, or intellectual disabilities. Most of them had autism. And once a week, we would have this uh, guy come in who was this kind of Rastafarian guy who'd come in with all of his drums and would do these big drum circles with, with these kids. And it was extraordinary to have his kids that are, you know, many of them are nonverbal, um, really need a lot of support to have 15, 20, 25 kids all experiencing this joint attention, all connected with the same rhythm. There was something truly extraordinary about it where in any other kind of situation that would not be occurring um and so yeah i I definitely think this and there's something very kind of primal i think to drumming and to 
uh, rhythm that I think it's a great area. I think for a lot of us who are us musicians on an instinctual level, we kind of feel like this makes sense. And then there's the kind of logical, rational mind of us that says, okay, now we have to study it so we can show the data that says what we are, are thinking on an, on an intuitive level. There's actually data that, that backs that up. And when I was uh, first talking with you, I, I uh, shared with you, you know, my son has some motor challenges as well. And I, I shared with you on his fourth birthday, I got him a, uh, a, a drum set. And when you were sharing this with me uh, in our first conversation, they made me feel so much better about the fact that I got him a drum set. <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting because he really picks up on these kind of unique rhythms, but he has a hard time like keeping just his body there for a long period of time. Um, so it's, but it's been, it's been a joy to really watch him uh, kind of pick up these different rhythms. And um, he's, he's got a fascinating mind, my son. <laughs> That's great. So um, Dr. Kastner, where can people reach you? I want to thank you again for, for spending the hour with us. You shared a lot of just great, great information um, and I want to just thank you for your time. Where can people reach you and learn more about you and what you do? Um, people should feel free to email me um, at my Princeton email address. It's um, askastner, so my first initial and last name in one word, at princeton.edu. Um, as I said before, I work with a lot of families, with, especially with children with neurodevelopmental challenges. And um, I'll be very happy to provide um, you know, any advice that I may have uh, or just to listen. Um, but uh, yeah, people should just feel free to share information with me or direct questions. Um, I'll be very happy. Well, thank you so much. And all of the links for how you can reach uh, Dr. McCaster will be on the show notes uh, at the website, ADHD Rewire. Just find her episode. And thank you so much. Thank you, Eric. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of ADHD Rewired. And if you're new to the show, welcome to ADHD Rewired. We are more than just a podcast. We are a community focused on learning, growing, and connection. You can see a full outline of this and all other episodes with all the links and other resources mentioned during this interview at ADHDrewired.com. Help support this podcast by checking out my sponsors. I use Zoom video conferencing nearly every day, and so can you. Go free or go pro. But please, go to erictibbers.com slash Zoom so they know that I sent you. And you can get a free audiobook from Audible at erictibbers.com slash Audible. And next time you shop Amazon, use the Amazon search portal at ADHDrewired.com. A small percentage of your purchase will go to support this show. And it doesn't cost you anything extra. You can also support this podcast by leaving an honest rating and review in iTunes or Stitcher. This really helps other people find this show. And don't forget to hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. Don't just be a passive listener, be an active member of the ADHD Rewired community. We are on Facebook. You can like our page, but please submit your request to join our free and growing community. And don't forget to check your other inbox because I screen everybody before they come into our community.
Looking for a coach? If you're still listening at this point and you answered yes, come to my website at ADHDrewire.com and schedule your free 20-minute consultation or call me at 224-993-9450. Is your school, business, or organization hiring speakers? I provide fun and engaging presentations full of practical solutions that both educate and entertain. Hire me for your next professional development day or corporate training event. Go to ADHDrewired.com slash talks. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you next week.